Now join me by taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Today reading Luke, chapter 22, verses 14 to 23. A familiar passage as we hear words that we uh, read a version of every week as we come to the Lord's table. And every week as we come to the Lord's table in uh, good Presbyterian fashion, I give a small table sermon uh, that's uh, pretty standard in Presbyterian churches where we're fencing the table and rehearsing week after week the significance of the Lord's Supper. Well, today we get a little bit longer table sermon, uh, but a table sermon nonetheless as we contemplate together what it is that we're doing at the Lord's Supper and, and why it is the Lord has given us uh, this sacrament. So we're reading today Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 14, and reading to the end of verse 23. That's on page 882 of the Pew Bibles. Before we read this word together, please join me in another word of prayer as we seek God's blessing upon our reading and our hearing. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we thank you for your word that you have laid before us. We thank you for the table that you have set in our presence, both of these given by the sacrifice of your Son, by the working of your Spirit. And, O oh Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would lay us open, that you would divide with the sword of your Word between joint and marrow, soul and body, so that we would be undone by your Word, so that you would put us back together by your Holy Spirit, to be made anew in the image of Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, as we read, uh, to hear and to believe and to trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask in his name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 22, beginning to read in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. When he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. Well, Luke's account of Jesus' ministry is an account that is punctuated by stories of table fellowship. Many of you have been with us for the last three years. You have heard most of the sermons up to this point, and so as you remember back, as you think back after uh, over 22 chapters of Jesus' preaching and of his miracles, you might recall that some of the most memorable scenes in the gospel have taken place in dining rooms. This is all the way back in chapter 5 that Jesus was first accused of being a friend of sinners and tax collectors. It was in another banquet in chapter 7, one hosted in the home of Simon the Pharisee, where Jesus was anointed by a questionable woman who had found forgiveness for her sins. It was at a dinner party 
Now that Jesus thundered his woes against the scribes and the Pharisees, it was at a banquet without tables where Jesus manifested his power to the crowds wandering in the wilderness with nothing to eat. And we could continue, we could remember Jesus' words to Martha, we could remember his kindness to the man with a withered hand on a Sabbath day. We could recall, we could count the number of times that Jesus compared the kingdom of God to a feast, to a banquet. We could remember the way that he taught his disciples to always seek the bottom seat uh, in the banquet hall. The overall impression is, I think, in Luke's gospel, just as it happens today in our homes and around our tables, often the most important conversations happen over a meal. No wonder then that Uh, The narrative here in Luke's gospel, just like the narrative in the other gospels, uh, pauses on the night before Jesus' death, right before his crucifixion, uh, before he suffers, he says, and shows us the Savior sharing food and drink with his closest friends. It was at that meal that Jesus spoke the words that also mark the rhythms of our relationship with him. Because it's not only Luke's gospel or the other gospels, but it's the spiritual life of every believer that is punctuated by episodes of tableship with the Lord Jesus. In our church, we come week after week, and in many other churches, they come month after month or quarter after quarter, but we do it regularly. However often we do it, we come together and we gather around the Lord's table, and we come to share koinonia, communion. Communion with one another and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the table to remember. We come to proclaim the death of our Savior until He returns. We come to the table to hear a word of pardon and of forgiveness and to be assured of His grace for sinners. The Lord Jesus Christ has given us His supper to strengthen our faith in His salvation. Today, as we pause over these familiar words, listen to hear the voice of the Savior calling you to communion with Him. We're going to examine the Lord's Supper in this passage today under three headings. First, we need to know that the table of the Lord is a table of remembrance. The table of the Lord is a table of remembrance. This is the fundamental meaning of the Lord's Supper upon which all Christians the world over are agreed. You may be aware that throughout the centuries, through the various branches of Christ's church, Christians have often had their most severe disagreements with one another over the sacraments, over what exactly the sacraments are and why we have them and how they're supposed to be celebrated. But despite all of our disagreements, verse 19 in Luke's gospel here in this chapter, verse 19 is the great unifier of Christ's people around his table. Read it together. Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so this is our starting point. Whatever else we might believe about the Lord's Supper, and yes, we believe a few other things about the Lord's Supper and what's happening, but whatever else we might believe or understand about the Lord's Supper, we have to acknowledge that the table of the Lord is a table of remembrance. Christ gave us the sacrament of his supper so that we wouldn't be sluggish, so that we wouldn't be forgetful in our faith. He gave us broken bread so that we would remember his sacrifice for sinners on Calvary. 
Then again, if we begin with verse 19, we're already getting ahead of ourselves. Because there's a context for this supper. Jesus instituted his sacrament of the supper in the context of the Jewish Passover. That was a preparation. If you were uh, with us last week in verses 7 to 13, Jesus sent Peter and John out to prepare a room for them where they would all eat the supper together. And then when they joined together, Jesus spoke of how he yearned, how he earnestly desired to eat this supper together with his closest friends before he suffered. And that means that the memory of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, the memory that is communicated in the Passover feast, that serves as the background scenery for the drama of the Lord's Supper. There is a change that is taking place. Jesus is replacing the old remembrance of the Jewish church with the new remembrance of the gospel church. And in both sacramental meals, in the old covenant meal and in the new covenant meal, we find a reminder of the God who saves his people with a mighty outstretched arm. That was a symbolism that was already contained in the the Passover supper. The Passover was a four-course meal. Uh, You may know that it was carefully choreographed to represent, not just represent, but to represent to the people who partook what it was that God had done to deliver his children out of Egypt, out of slavery to Pharaoh. The Passover lamb, of course, was the central element, the the main course of the meal, and it recalled the blood that covered the doorposts on Jewish homes on that night before the Exodus. It recalled the the sacrifice that, that kept God's people safe, that marked them out as God's children, so that as the destroying angel went through Egypt and struck down every firstborn, God's own firstborn son, his his child, his son Israel was safe. And then there was the unleavened bread, and that recalled their haste in leaving Egypt. They also ate bitter herbs that reminded them of the bitterness of slavery. They, uh, they sat around a bowl of salt that reminded them of their tears and their cries to the Lord. They even served a, a paste of stewed fruit that was supposed to look like and supposed to remind them of the clay that they used to make bricks in a foreign land. And in the course of of that drama, in the course of that Passover meal, normally it was the youngest member of the family who was designated and then prompted at just the right time to ask that all-important theological question, Father, he would say, why is this night different from all other nights? And then the head of the household would uh, would rehearse the, the liturgy of remembrance. All over again, he would tell the story to his children and tell them, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with signs and wonders, great and grievous. So the sacrament of the Passover was the sacrament of remembrance among the Jewish people. It was a feast to celebrate all that God had done in the past, and yet Jesus tells us here in this passage that that feast of remembrance, that Passover, also looked forward to fulfillment in God's kingdom. Take a look at verse 16. Jesus says, I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. That means that for all its wonderful drama and all its remembrance, the Passover was incomplete on its own. It was but a shadow, a foretaste, 
It was a prophecy pointing forward to something that was greater yet to come. And that does bring us back to verse 19 where Jesus takes bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. It was another calculated symbolic action. This time before the deliverance to foreshadow what was about to happen to Christ. In less than 24 hours, he would be arrested and beaten. He would be mocked and he would be spat upon. He would be crucified. And his lifeless body would be buried into the darkness of the grave. And here, in the presence of his apostles, he's telling them before it happens, that when it happens, they ought to remember. They ought to recognize that all of this was for their deliverance. The language is important. Jesus says, this is my body given for you. It doesn't just mean for your benefit, but it means in your place. This is a vicarious, substitutionary atonement. That's the big theological way of saying it is someone else paying the price that your sins deserve. It is a substitute in our place. Jesus Christ received in his body the punishment that we deserve. He was sinless, he was perfect the only upright son of the Father in heaven, yet he was executed as a criminal. He suffered the weight of God's wrath and curse upon our sin. And his body was given not for himself, but for his people. Isaiah 53 verse 5 puts it best. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just as the sacrifice was given in Egypt to mark out God's children, to keep them safe from destruction, so also Christ is our Passover lamb. His death brings us life. His punishment cancels our sin. His curse brings us blessing and deliverance that we do not deserve. This is my body, he says. It's given for you. Of course, we don't believe that the bread literally is or or that it physically becomes the actual physical corporal body of Jesus Christ. There, there is no mystical, supernatural change that happens to the bread uh, when the minister says the words of institution. There is no magic incantation bringing Jesus Christ and his ascended body down to an altar where he is slain all over again for the sins of his people. Christ has offered a single sacrifice for all time for those who are being sanctified in him. We emphatically deny the doctrine of transubstantiation. Christ has a body, and that body has a place, and that place is at the right hand of the Father. There is no change to the bread or to the wine when we come. We don't affirm the doctrine of transubstantiation, but we do believe that in these symbols, in the symbol of bread broken at the table of the Lord, Christ is really offering his life to us for our salvation. And at the table of the Lord, Christ gives us a sign to remind us of his strong arm that's able to deliver us from the bonds of slavery. This table proclaims freedom to us. 
deliverance for Christ's children through his all-sufficient sacrifice. And the table of the Lord is a table of remembrance. The table of the Lord is also a table of promise. It's our second point, that the table of the Lord is a table of promise. Verse 20. Likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now here in Luke's Gospel, we notice something that is not present in any of the other accounts of the institution of the Lord's Supper elsewhere in the New Testament. And that is that Luke mentions two separate cups. Or depending on the way that you read it, perhaps he mentions the same cup two separate times. Verse 17, he takes a cup and he gives it to his apostles and he has them divide the wine among themselves. But then in verse 20, he refers to the cup. He gives it a new significance in his blood of the new covenant. And that seems puzzling. It doesn't seem like what we do. We always only have one cup and one bread. Until you remember the context of the Passover behind the Lord's Supper. Remember, there is a transition that's happening here. The old is giving way to the new, and Luke seems to have structured this text in such a way that we can see that transition happening. Notice the parallel uh, statements in, in verses 16 and 18, and then another set of parallel statements in verse 19 and 20. 16 and 18, Jesus mentions food and drink in the old covenant, and these are the things that are being fulfilled in the kingdom of God. But then in verses 19 and 20, Jesus mentions food and drink in the new covenant, and he applies them to his own body and blood. There's a change that's happening. Physical deliverance for God's people in the Old Testament through the Exodus is being fulfilled. It is giving way to spiritual deliverance for God's people through Christ in the new covenant. The old covenant, written on tablets of stone, brought down from the mountain by Moses, is being uh, renewed, it's being fulfilled into the new covenant, written on the tablets of our hearts. There's a transition that's taking place. That means that the first cup that's mentioned in verse 17 is either the end of the Passover for God's people, or it's the beginning of the new significance that Jesus gives the Passover in himself. There's a transition here. The cup in, in verse 17 is almost like John the Baptist showing up on the pages of the New Testament. John the Baptist, of course, is the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant. He preached a, a message of repentance and preparation. He, he prepared the way of the people for the Savior who was yet to come. And yet he was also there to see and to witness the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when John was asked about Jesus and his ministry and, and his own ministry of repentance, you remember what he said. He said, he must increase and I must decrease. Well, if there's a separate cup in verse 17, that's what this cup is saying. That the Passover must decrease and the Lord's Supper must increase. There's a transition that's happening here. The old is passing away, but the new has come. Now, actually, in the context of the Passover, the idea of having multiple cups wasn't strange or, or out of place at all. In a normal Passover celebration, the, the various stages of the banquet were marked by four separate cups that were each meant to be drunk at specific times in the ceremony. Those four cups re, uh, represented the promises that God made to his people in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, beginning to read in verse 6, 
God says to Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and here's the first promise, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Number two, I will deliver you from slavery to them. Number three, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And finally, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. Those are the promises celebrated in the Passover feast by four separate cups of wine. God's I am promises. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. And every year as believing Jews celebrated the Passover feast, they would drink a toast to each of God's promises. They would gather together and remember not only what God had done in the past, but they would hope together in what was still to come in the future. And that means that the Passover feast was a meal in the middle. It was always a meal looking back to what God had done and looking forward to what was still to come. The Passover itself was a table of remembrance and a table of promise, and it had to be. It had to be a table of promise, because God's faithful people who know the guilt of their sin know that taking a nation out of slavery is not what real redemption is all about. They knew that if the problem of the wickedness in their heart was left unchanged, it wouldn't matter how many improvements, how many earthly freedoms they enjoyed. And you can read the history of the nation of Israel. You can see that it was nothing if not a chronicle of of the many ways that a forgetful people abandoned the Lord who had delivered them once long ago in the past. And so sometimes the the Passover was celebrated with zeal, with, uh, with enthusiasm. Sometimes it devolved into formality and hypocrisy and a kind of spiritual manipulation, or at least an attempt at one. Sometimes the, the Passover faded from the scene altogether. It was replaced by the disgusting worship of the pagan sex gods that filled the landscape around the promised land. And you can remember that already on the way out of Egypt, barely out of the sight of the Red Sea crossing that was still probably dotted with the bodies of their Egyptian pursuers, Many among the people of God sat down and they whined and they moaned because they didn't have meat pots and bread baskets. You remember that when they got to the promised land the first time, only about two years after they left Egypt, they got themselves a delegation and said, forget this Moses, we're going back to the loving arms of Pharaoh and his taskmasters. How could they be so blind, we ask? How could they be so heartless? How could they be so utterly stiff-necked? God diagnoses their problem in Psalm 95, verse 10. He said that he is provoked with that generation because they are a people who go astray in their hearts. That's where real slavery takes hold. And so for 1,500 years, the faithful remnant kept the Passover, and they kept it looking forward to the day when the chains of their hearts, when their their bondage to the corruption of their flesh would be done away with. Looking forward to the day when God would bear His mighty strong arm again and set them free from slavery to sin. And the people looked forward to it, and the prophets told them to wait for it. And when Jesus showed up and told them that this was the cup of the new covenant in His blood, they knew, every man in that room knew, that He was claiming to be the one with the power to change hearts once and for all. 
the new covenant shows up in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31 and on to verse 34. And I want you to listen and hear the direct comparison to the old covenant that's celebrated at the Passover. Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Some of those promises are the same, aren't they? I will make them my people and I will be their God. And and God had made that promise already, but there was something standing in the way of that promise being fulfilled for their people. And it was the promise at the end of the new covenant that I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more that all the faithful remnant was waiting for. The day when as the east is from the west, so God would separate their sins and their iniquities from them. The day when he would write his law upon their hearts and give them new obedience and new faith and new joy in serving the Lord and take them away from their wandering hearts so prone to go astray like sheep without a shepherd. They were waiting for that new Passover lamb, not just to save them from the slavery of this world, but from the slavery of their own sin and their own depravity. And at the table of the Lord, Christ gives the cup of the new covenant as an authorization that these are the promises that are for His church. Forgiveness of sin, and acceptance with God, and delight in His gospel written on our hearts. These are the promises that free us from the old bondage to sin so that we can serve the Lord with gladness. These are the promises that are for us in Christ. And by virtue of speaking here, as he does, of of the blood that is poured out on our behalf, these are also the promises that do not depend upon us. You know, a covenant is always made with uh, a promise and a curse, with a blessing and a curse. And if you obey, I will give this, and if you disobey, we will do that. And often you recall from the Old Testament the way that you spoke not of making a covenant, but of cutting a covenant, because it always came with the killing of a sacrificial animal. And blood was spilled, and often the parties would walk through as, as that, uh, that flaming pot passed through in Genesis 15 in place of Abraham. You would walk through the two pieces of the animal saying, if I disobey the covenant, so may it be to me. What does Jesus tell his people? He says, this is my blood of the new covenant. So that I will take your disobedience upon myself, so that I will take your curse and you will receive my blessing. That's what the table of the Lord is all about. Proclaiming to us that God's anger has been turned away. 
that his wrath has been poured out, proclaiming to us that Christ has already drunk that cup to the dregs, and now there is nothing left for us believers to drink but the cup of welcome and the cup of fellowship, the cup of blessing from our Savior. And so we come to the table And the command says, remember. We come to the bread, and the bread says, repent. Remember that Christ the Savior was crushed for your iniquities. But we come to the table, and the cup says, believe. And the table says, draw near. And remember that Christ poured out His life as a sacrifice for sinners. It's why we come to the table over and over and over again. We come because we're weak. And we need to be reminded of His strength on our behalf. We come because we're forgetful and we need to be reminded of His mercy. We come because we are woefully prone to wander away from the shepherd of our souls and we need to be convinced that He's the one who's seeking us and reconciling us and sacrificing Himself for us. We come because we're redeemed And we're renewed, but we're still struggling with that indwelling sin. And we need to hear a word of promise and assurance that there is a day coming that one day it will all be done away with. We come to hear again that in Christ God has forgiven our iniquity. And that He will remember our sin no more. And so the table of the Lord is a table of remembrance. It's a table of promise. And the table of the Lord is also a table of witness. Verse 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now this is a detail that is in the other institutions of the Lord's Supper, but not nearly as closely as Luke puts it here. The connection between the Lord's Supper and the Lord's betrayer. Here Christ moves directly from the bread to the cup to the hand of Judas and it's an, it is an invasion. An enemy intrusion into the fellowship that Christ has with His disciples. Here's the Savior on the night before His crucifixion. The night that He's going to give Himself the sins of His people. And before that He's giving this gift of remembrance to His infant church. And he lavishes his people with the emblems of his passion. And he declares the promise of God through his sacrifice. In Presbyterian language, what he's doing is that he's instituting the signs and the seals of the new covenant. He's preaching the gospel, not just to our ears, but to our eyes, and to our hands, and our tongues, and to our faith. Yet even at this first Lord's Supper, there was a false disciple sitting at the table. There was one among them who who looked like all the rest of them and who spoke like all the rest of them. And when Jesus said there was a betrayer, nobody said, oh yeah, it's Judas, we knew. (laughs) We were waiting for it. Everybody knew that Judas was the one. No, they began to question one another. The other Gospels tell us that they looked at themselves and said, is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I the one who might do it? And they they began to argue with one another, questioning, it says, among one another which one of them was going to do this. He looked just like them. He sounded just like them. He ate just like them. He drank just like them. But he received no spiritual benefit for going through the motions of partaking of the Lord's Supper. 
And nobody at that table knew the difference between the men who trusted in Christ and the one who sat there with murder in his heart. There's a lot that we could say about Judas from this passage. And we could, we could go on. Believe me, I could. Uh, we can talk about the, the philosophical line dividing between God's uh, determination and Judas' free will and his responsibility. And, and we could wonder together how somebody could be so hard-hearted to receive bread from Christ's hand while he's secretly plotting his destruction. And we could wonder together why Jesus didn't just kick him out before the supper happened. And those are all good questions, and, and maybe for another time. But this afternoon, the most important thing you can know about Judas is that he's a man who partook of the table like all the rest, and yet he received no spiritual benefit from the supper. He ate, and he drank, and he went through the motions. And his heart was not softened. And his faith was not strengthened. He received no blessing for his time. Instead of a blessing, Jesus pronounces woe. Woe, he says, to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So you see, for Judas, this table became a witness. Not a witness of salvation in Christ. Not a witness on his behalf. Not a witness for him, but a witness against him. He put out his hand and he, he took of the bread and he partook of the cup, yet he refused to believe the gospel before him and the symbols of bread and wine. He refused to trust in Christ the suffering Savior. And the table became a witness against him. Notice again, read again, verses 20 and 21. Notice how quickly Jesus moves from the supper, from the table to the betrayal. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He hasn't even drawn back. He's still there. He's still instituting. And he says, look at this. Pay attention to this witness. And so sharing the table, of course, wasn't the betrayal itself. That wouldn't happen until the Garden of Gethsemane. But here is is a twisting of the knife in the back of Christ. Judas drew near, but not for sustenance, not for spiritual life. He drew near to maintain appearance. That's what everybody else was doing. And if you just go along with everybody else who's, who's around you, if you just say the right things, if you just act the right way, then you can maintain your cover as a pretty clean-looking Christian. And nobody else will know the difference. Nobody else will know what's in your heart so long as you just go along with everybody else. And he came to the table for appearance sake. And in that false approach to Christ, the table became a witness against him. Now, Paul puts it bluntly in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Do you hear that? Guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. That's Judas language. The one through whom he is betrayed. The one who is guilty. Jesus says the one who handed me over has the greater sin. Guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. This is falsehood hiding under the cover of, of good appearances language. And Paul says this happens every time false disciples attempt to come to the table to serve their own appearance and their own interest. 
So he goes on to say that anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. The table of the Lord is a table of witness. It is not neutral. It will either be a witness to you of God's grace in Christ for sinners, or it will stand as a witness against you for your refusal to believe the gospel. Whether the gospel is being preached to our eyes or to our ears, that is always the dividing line. The dividing line is faith and unbelief. The word goes out and some believe unto eternal life and others disbelieve unto eternal judgment. The same thing happens when we come to the table, when we gather around these signs and seals of the new covenant meal. The bread is broken and the cup is poured out and some believe unto eternal life and others disbelieve unto everlasting judgment. And this is the difference. Faith and unbelief. This is the difference between blessing and woe, between life and death, and between heaven and hell. So what then are we to think of Judas? Should we think that he's here in order to keep us from coming to the table too soon? Should we think that Judas is here as a horror story to scare us away from uh, from partaking of the Lord's Supper when we're not ready? No, Judas is here to draw you near in faith rather than falsehood. He's here in order to call you to eat and drink the promises of the gospel through belief in the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to eat and drink worthily. It doesn't mean that you've got your act so cleaned up that when you come to the table, everybody else will be able to see what a good Christian you are. Eating and drinking worthily at God's table is trusting in Him and the sacrifice He offers that covers the sins you could never atone for by your own actions. Unworthy eating and drinking comes and says, I'll do it, but I don't really need it. And Judas is here to show us that we can come, not in fear, but in faith. We can come remembering the sacrifice of Christ. We can come believing in his promises and receiving strength for our souls and life by his word. The table of the Lord is a table of remembrance. It's a place where we look back to the weight of our sin and remember the Savior who was crushed beneath it. The table of the Lord is a table of promise. It's a place where we look forward to the eternal fellowship that Christ has purchased for all his unworthy people. And for those who come to the supper in faith, the table is a table of witness on your behalf. It proclaims to you grace and mercy for sinners through Christ. It proclaims everlasting reconciliation and joy in the Lord. It proclaims fellowship for you. Dear brothers and sisters, the table is set. Let us eat and drink by faith. Let's pray.